Welcome to System Shift, the Greenpeace podcast that explores new ideas and thinking on economic system change for a sustainable future. In this episode, we are joined by economist and writer, activist Anne Pettifor. Anne has been working for decades to bring attention to how our economic system is driving the destruction of our planet. And she is a harsh critic of fiscal austerity and argues that democracies must reclaim control over money production and manage the financial sector in the interest of society and ecosystem. Anne is perhaps best known for correctly predicting the financial crisis of 2007 and 8, based on her understanding of the instability of the deregulated financial system. In this episode, Anne demystifies the complex creation of money in modern economies because the money is not anymore backed by gold reserves held by central banks. And she will explain to us how we have arrived with this system that allows commercial bankers to create credit without limits almost, and with minimum regulatory oversight. We will also talk about the Bretton Woods Conference in 1944, establishing a new global economic order with a fixed exchange rate system that provided stability for a long time. But by the 70s, it had given way to the unrestrained growth and deregulation that so devastatingly drive environmental degradation, inequality, and other social economic problems. Fortunately, Anne has a prescription for how we can get out of this dilemma. Her proposed model includes massive investment in renewable energy, sustainable infrastructure and social welfare programs. All this funded through a new system of international monetary cooperation that doesn't create inflation or debt. Anne is active in many social justice movements and one of the leaders of the Jubilee 2000 debt cancellation campaign, which aimed to cancel the debt of the world's poorest countries. We will hear about her latest campaigning work uh, to end financial speculation that is driving up prices on food and energy for consumers, while multinationals continue to reap the profit from global crisis. Join us as we delve into the important topic of economic system change and learn from one of the most inspiring voices in the campaign for a kinder, more sustainable economic system. So, without further ado... A warm welcome to you, Anne Pettifor. Thank you very much, Carl. Great to be here. Yes, it's really nice to have you here because there are some topics that you normally speak about that I think many people are wondering about but actually not understanding, yeah. such as what is money? Right, well, we can. that's a deep dive. Let's do that <laughs> quickly. Um, I, uh, you know, I... I've been struggling to explain all this. My mission is to explain this to people. And there's a lot of confusion around money because of crypto, MMT, and so on and so forth. And I am a monetary Keynesian. I think Keynes was one of the few who really understood money. So I just wanted to make clear that's where I stand. So money is nothing more than a social contract, a promise to pay. That's all it is. And when you think about it, 5,000 years ago, they had credit systems in villages. So the, in the village, I would be good at hair cutting and you would be good at um, thatching your roof. So I would promise, I would cut your hair if in exchange for that, you thatched my roof, right? The problem became if after I've cut your hair, you decide that you're going on a drinking blah and you don't, you don't thatch my roof. So for that, we had a chief in the village and the chief in the village would look at all the promises and say, oi, you owe her to thatch the roof, right, and get it done. So that was the credit system, and you always had it regulated. You always had a chief or a high priest or whoever it was that managed this. Then if strangers came to town, if strangers came towards the village, and there was no trust and there was no regulation, then you engaged in barter. Then you said, sorry, you know, in exchange for this, I would like a pig or a chicken or whatever it was. We've had credit systems for more than 5,000 years. And for me, I'm a great admirer of this. I think it's one of humanity's greatest innovations was the social construct that is money. That enabled us to do more than what we could do with barter, right? But the truth of the matter is that it is a system. It is a system, first of all. It's not printing money, you know, because it's a, a social construct I promise to pay. All that you often need is some sort of evidence that that your promise can be upheld. So if I, you know, wave a card at a coffee machine, the, the card is saying you can trust Anne Pettifor, um to pay for this cup of coffee. 
signed the bank. I know that she's got money in the bank. She can pay for this. That is all it is. Even a £10 note or a, or a euro note is just a signifier of those promises to pay. The problem is once the promises start circulating, it's quite difficult to remember the origin. Right? And the thing about credit is based on the word credo, I believe, I trust. And if you have a money system, a monetary system, in which trust is absent, you get chaos, essentially, and you get the sort of mess we're in at the moment. And trust is something that, you know, doesn't come natural to human beings. We're quite untrustworthy, and I speak for myself. You know, I'm inclined to cycle through a red light if I think I can get away with it. You know, so we, we are quick at breaking regulations. So we need an enforcer, if you like, or someone who upholds trust. And we have a legal system that does that. We have a contractual system that does that. We have regulators that do that. Now, the whole thing at the moment is that neoliberalism said, take away all the regulators. Take away, the, take away those who hold the thing up. Take away the trust. You don't need trust. That's why you have crypto, because crypto was designed to be built on an untrustworthy system with no regulation. And that's why uh, crypto is so corrupt and fraudulent and why it's blown up and bankrupted so many people. So this system of trust has is a system. Again, money doesn't operate independently of it. Money is part of that system. Now, the thing is, when you remove all the regulation over credits and you make it possible for people to make endless promises, to use collateral to say, look, I have a hut in the village and I'm using this as collateral. Can you give me more money? Can I borrow more? Can I leverage that collateral? Then that enables you to raise more and more and more credit. And whereas in the days of Bretton Woods, the bank manager would call you in and say, how are you going to spend this credit? Are you going to go and gamble on it? Are you going to use it to buy booze? Or are you going to invest in something that will generate income? Nowadays, the bank manager doesn't ask those questions anymore. It says, you know, I never forget talking to a, a banker when I complained about this. And he said, yes, well, when you drive into a petrol station and you fill your car with petrol, the petrol station doesn't ask you where you're going. And in exactly the same way, he said, bankers don't ask you how you're spending your money. And I said, well, I'm sorry, but I think those are two very different things. And even so, I think you know we need to limit the use of petrol. But I also but, think um, an interesting part here is that when you talk about the leveraging thing, because... Yeah. It's okay if the bank had one euro and it lended one euro, then the bank took the consequences if it lost this euro. But if it can lend more than the one euro it has itself, then if we don't know where this money is going, you risk a financial collapse. Yeah. So now, Carl, the key thing is, is the bank doesn't lend savings. Exactly. The bank doesn't, doesn't lend money that's already in the bank. It creates money and it does so. If you think about it, when you apply for a mortgage for your for a property, the bank doesn't have, you know, a million euros in the bank. It's not sitting there, which Mrs. Jones's savings, which it hands over to Mr. Smith. No. What the bank does is enter numbers into a computer and transfer them to your account. And of course, as we are all digitized, we know this, right? So there's no question of I'm using money that I already have to lend. I'm using my power to create money to lend to you, and I'm not asking questions about how you are going to spend that money. I think That's this is crucial. That I yeah. think this is crucial that people understand because they honestly thought that the money the bank lended they actually had in their coffers. Yeah. And if people don't understand, and certainly politicians don't understand this, then yeah. they will fail to regulate this high risk taking of the banks. Exactly. I think it's a conspiracy call. I think that we've been t telling each other these lies for reasons that suit the finance sector. So um, I'll never forget when I was in the middle of the financial crisis, I was in New York and Tim Geithner, who had been an advisor to President Clinton and was now on the board of the Federal Reserve, wrote an article in New York Times in which he said, oh, the bank has to use savings carefully to lend to others who need savings who are less patient, uh, who are impatient and need those savings uh, for, for holidays or building or whatever. And I thought, how can a, a member of the Federal Reserve of the United States 
not to understand money. And what made it doubly um, ironic was almost at the same time, Ben Bernanke, who was the was the governor of the Federal Reserve and who, by the way, last year was given an, a Nobel Prize by the Swedish. So he, Ben Bernanke, is interviewed by a television program for the first time. And at that point, they just ba bailed out an insurance company called AIG. And the interviewer says to Mr. Bernanke, now, Mr. Bernanke, where did you get the money from to bail out AIG? Did you get it from taxes? And he said, no, 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 he said. We have something at the Federal Reserve that's present in every single bank, he said. It's called a computer. And we enter numbers into the computer and we transfer $11 billion to AIG, right? Now, it wasn't quite as simple as that because AIG had to promise to repay, AIG had to offer collateral, and AIG had to sign a contract, and furthermore, they were given that money and charged interest on it, which in the end, Federal Reserve made a profit out of. But even so, he understood something that Tim Geithner, who was one of his board members, did not understand. The funny thing, I mean, also collateral means that in daily use, you would say maybe security or so. So Yeah, yeah, yeah like your property serves as yeah. collateral when you want to borrow more. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, when money is generated in this way, you have an expansion of the financial sector. Yep. And this expansion, in the way it's generated, and because of the ownership of the financial sector is very unequal, it's often so that growth in a neoliberal economy also at the same time automatically increases inequality with all its negative aspects. Could you explain a little bit how this works? Well, the point is this. If you have the power to create credit ad infinitum, then you have the power to expand consumption and production ad infinitum. And um, that is why we cannot create credit ad infinitum for infinity, for, you know, infinite amounts of credit. Um, and so there's a direct link. For me, it's a bit like the petrol analogy, which is you're pouring fuel into the economy and it's fueling consumption and production and extraction. And you're saying, oh, we've got to dampen this construction and this consumption, but you're keeping the fuel going, basically. And that is credit. And it's unregulated credit. And it's even worse than that, Carl. I mean, don't let me start on the shadow banking system. Because, I will you know, get you started on this because it's important that people oh, see that yeah. without reform of the financial system, we will not win the battle on socially just and ecological transition. So I think it's really important we do dwell on this. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, we can, and we can come back to debt in a moment. But after the financial crisis, a high street bank, you know, all the banks were very insecure. At home, on the high street, the main street, the governments intervened to protect the savings of ordinary people. And in Britain, I don't know what it's like in Europe, but in Britain, it's up to £80,000. It's guaranteed it's about by the state. €100,000 in Europe normally. Yeah. Now, a, a bank, an asset management fund or a hedge fund or a private equity firm has a little bit more than £80,000 to play with, right? They have, in the case of uh, BlackRock, they have something like $6 trillion that they manage. So they can't put it in a high street bank because, you know, put $6 trillion in a high street, the bank blows up, you're in very deep trouble. So instead what ha has happened is they've invented something called the shadow banking system, which is a system that operates out there in the stratosphere. It's invisible. And there they are lending money to each other, a borrowing and lending, and they're using collateral to increase their lending, to leverage their borrowing, right? Leverage means to increase. And they're using, they're looking for collateral because you need a lot of collateral when you've got $6 trillion. Pension funds, for example, have collateral. It's called, it's called a pension fund. It's my pension. I'm paying every year premiums on my pension. It's a fantastic asset 
because I know I'll go on paying and the, the firm will go on paying for the next but 30 years. But it's also not as safe as one can imagine because not if this pension fund is in the stock market, it can obviously go down also. Yes. But the shocking thing is this when we come back to credit and credit creation is that it is possible for those institutions to use this collateral, which is one piece of collateral. They borrow against it once and then they borrow against it again. That's as if you had a house and you said, my house is worth 100,000 euros and I'd like to borrow another 150,000 euros. And the bank gives you 150,000 euros and you go and gamble the money. And then you go back to the bank and you say, can I have another 150,000 against the value of my house, which is only 100,000? And the bank gives you another 150,000. And then you do this to four other banks at the same time. <laughs> exactly. So that's what's happening out there, right? And we are not even aware of it. We don't care. We much rather focus here on this thing, what I can see here on the floor by me, right? right. The, either my own domestic household concerns or my own national government concerns. Going thinking about that, we, we none of us do it. And they are so happy that we ignore them. They are so happy that mainstream economists ignore them. But they're then, so happy uh... that, you know, they're happy. Nobody bothers them and they have a wonderful time out there. And every so often they bring about a massive crisis as they did in May 2020 at the height of the um, pandemic. And they had to be totally rescued by taxpayers. And this is what I mean. They might play around up there, but the people building the safety net is actually the ordinary taxpayer in the state. Exactly. And and uh, we are. this costs us a lot of money to do this. Yeah. And all the risks they take up there in the stratosphere is actually having negative impact on society because yep. we need to prioritize saving the financial system rather than saving people and other important issues. Yeah, exactly. So um, this did not used to be the case. This was usually not possible before. You mentioned earlier the Bretton Woods system. I think you should maybe explain a little bit how it used to be. Yeah. You know, we had globalization back in the 1920s and 30s. We had it in the 1800s. We had it in the 1700s, basically. And what globalization is, is government, if you like, by the bankers. Um, just to put it crudely, right? Right now, we are governed by these guys. They decide on our interest rates. They decide on the value of our currency. They decide whether to invest in our economies or not. They supposedly look after our pensions. You know, they might as well be the government. But also they indirectly decide the housing prices because they create asset inflation with exactly. what they are doing. So they create inflation, all of that. They're mainly based in Wall Street, but they're also in Frankfurt and also in the city of London. So that was the situation in the 1700s, in the 1800s, in the 19th century, and in the 20th century. And then in the 1920s, we had a series of crises or cascading crises polycrises, I think they call them now. And society woke up to it, and including the man I regard as my mentor, John Maynard Keynes. He understood money. He understood how the system worked. And after the First World War, he desperately tried to rebuild Europe under a more stable system than we'd had before the war. And he was defeated, if I may say so, by, by Wall Street. But in the 20s and 30s, after a series of crises, Politicians, and in particular President Roosevelt in the United States, woke up to the threat that the system posed to domestic economies. And Roosevelt said, look, I'm not playing ball anymore. I want Wall Street to hand over all their gold to the Treasury. I'm moving the government. His finance minister, his chancellor, was called Morgenthau. And, and Morgenthau, Henry Morgenthau said, I'm moving the government from Wall Street to my office at the Treasury, because we, after all, are the elected representatives of the people. And he transformed the American economy. It didn't go very smoothly, and Roosevelt was no angel. Uh, there were problems, but it began to stabilize. Neither was actually Morgenthau, because he wanted to punish the Germans very hard after the Second World War, too. So, yeah, everybody has their flaws, but they, re they made a really important change, though. So they began the process. And then in 1944, one of the best things Roosevelt did was to convene this conference at Bretton Woods. And what I like about it is he refused to allow any banker to attend. And very few people know that. He only had economists 
And he had economists from the north and the south come. So everybody was there. The Russians were there. The Indians were there. The Chinese were there. Latin Americans were there as well, of course, as the Americans and the Brits and the European. So that's when they began to reform and transform the financial system. But I have to tell you that Keynes was defeated at Bretton Woods by White, who was um, the United States government. Because the United States at that point realized they were top dog and they wanted to have control of the world's reserve currency. And he thought that was a big mistake and was a big mistake. Right. But the minute they left Bretton Woods conference and they went from Bretton Woods in New Hampshire to Washington, the bankers started to fight back and they started to dismantle the system. But anyway, for 30 years or so, we had a period in which the bankers were subordinated to the interests of society where governments and, and society had more control over interest rates, capital flows, the currency, and so on and so yeah, forth. Yeah, I mean, to put it simply, we had a regulated financial system. Absolutely, yeah. And w but what I think is important here is also that it was possible. You had an unregulated system, and then you yeah. regulated it. Yeah. And we saw that in the years after this, actually, social justice increased welfare increased, you had a lot of really positive effects. Except growth increased. Mm. So there was a problem. I'm not saying, yeah. you know, we're not, nothing is perfect. At that point, they didn't think growth was the problem. They no. thought the problem was high unemployment and, you know, farmers going bust because the prices of their goods would collapsed and so on. And so food supply was an issue. They were worried about the rise of fascism and war basically, you know, so they had other preoccupations. That was very justified, as was for a large segment of the global population Perfect. at that time still increased growth, i.e. transforming natural resources to commodities and welfare was yeah. actually something useful if it was shared. It, it increased people's well-being. But now we have this rampage, uncontrolled shadow banking system and financial sector at yeah. the same time as the growth that it tried to generate yeah. is also not only breaching social limits, it's also breaching ecological and climate limits. So now yeah. we have a system that is completely incorrectly designed for our current yeah. needs. So now, yeah. yet again, we need to have a new conference and we need to change this system. If we do, what are the crucial parts of such a change you would like to see? I don't think it's rocket science. First of all, you know, the point is this, that what will bring transformation? And I only wish and hope that reasoned debate will get us there. And with the reason I do what I do is because I think if people understand better, they will demand that politicians do the reasonable thing. So the reasonable things is capital controls. Now, we already see China exercises capital controls. You can't just flood your money into China and flood it out again. That's not allowed. They don't allow that. They, they defend the interests of their people. We've seen capital controls apply in Russia, for example, now for the war. Um, so these are things that are not impossible to apply. But the finance sector hates the very framing of them. I, to be Frank, I don't like to use the word controls. I prefer to use the word manage. We've got to manage flows of capital across borders. It may be that we want to send capital to Africa to help them with uh, transformation. But the question is how much and for what purpose and how. And the fact of the matter is that Keynes back in the 1930s was very, very clear. He longed for the euthanasia of the rentiers, he called it that people who make money just by renting out property or works of art or racehorses or, or software, right, and sit on their butts and collect the rent from, from software. He thought that was awful. He thought you had to invest your money into something productive and useful and so on. So we must begin with that, you know, with terms and conditions for what capital should be used for. You can't use it for gambling. You can't use it to mess around with crypto because you're going to bankrupt innocent citizens, you know, if you do. So the question is not control so much as management. And I always say, can you imagine if the, the chief executive of Apple, Mr. Cook, I think his name is Tim Cook, you've said to him, sorry, you should leave your business to the, to the invisible hand. 
the invisible hand will know how to deal with you. You're crazy. I manage my business. I manage Apple. I manage the prices. I manage where it's produced. I manage everything. But governments are expected not to manage anything. You know, I want us to see management of the, the financial system. I think a good example of that is when during the dot-com bubble yeah. 20 years ago or so, um, the banks yet again were in a dire situation. Yeah. And one of the alleviations the politicians did then was to deregulate food speculation. And we saw very negative effects of that. So managing food speculation and managing financial flows in a way that it directs them to serve the purpose of society and within the framework of ecological boundaries. That sounds really nice, but how would you do that? What what kind of managing would we need, so to speak? What, so, what's needed? So, Carl, it's so pertinent because just this week we won a victory in the European Parliament. We don't know quite how far it goes, but we know we're getting there. And that's because a coalition of European NGOs came together and we, we argued that we have inflation at the moment because of the massive increase in the price of oil, energy and wheat, grain. And of course, the mainstream economists and all of our leaders and politicians argue, well, that's because there's been a cut in the supply, an increase in demand. It's supply and demand. And that's not the case. Supply and demand plays a role. But we know that if you cut the supply of oil here, it pops out over there, sure as night follows day, basically. And there's been no shortage. Uh, the, the Americans are pumping oil and exporting it and LNG and so on and so forth. I think an interesting example of that is in one week after the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, the wheat commodity futures prices to a 72% degree was not linked to parties who wanted to trade in wheat, but was contracts generated only by bankers, only for speculation, as an example of why the price increases went up. Exactly. So we've been arguing that. We've said that there's two markets, for example, for oil. There's something called the wet market, when there is a company like Shell that has to sell oil, who really go out, they go out and trade and buy barrels of oil. And then there's the paper market for oil. And that's the market where I'm sitting on pension funds. I want to make a quick buck. I want to make a quick profit. I'm going to throw my money at grain prices or at oil prices and sit on my butt and collect the interest on that and the capital gains. And that's what they did. The wall of money that was aimed at these finite resources, oil and grain, energy and grain, caused those prices. Now, the market for that is fixed by something called the Chicago Mercantile Exchange and also Wall Street. Mm. So the commodity markets are global. So, And I always like to explain this in terms of Elon Musk builds motor cars. He fixes the price of the motor car, whether he sells it in London or whether he sells it in Sweden or, or in China, basically. Those prices are determined by him and his firm. Putin can't fix the price of oil, nor can those powerful Saudi sheikhs, nor can BP, nor can Shell. They are victims of the price of oil. And the price of oil is determined largely by speculation on those markets. And uh, they are losers as well. I, I, I get into trouble because I defend... I, I think oil. maybe we need to explain a little bit how this works. So yeah, what happens is that... A person in the bank believes that something will be go up or down in price. Uh -huh. And then they don't actually buy oil or grain. They produce yep. a paper of a future promise to pay a certain price. That's so right. for many commodities of the world, like we create more pigs in banks than in farms. We create more oil in banks than in oil fields. This is yeah. what people tend not to see often. Yeah. No, and, you know, so this is gambling. This is saying, I'm betting that the price of oil or the price of grain is going to rise or fall. And I can win when the price falls and I can win when the price rises, depending on the bet that I've taken. Sometimes I bet both ways. Yeah. And the fact that people make money out of gambling, you know, I mean, we all disapprove of people who become gambling addicts, but we have gambling addicts running the world. So we argued this to the European parliamentarians. So we've tightened up, we hope on some of what are called the MIFID re regulations. Um, 
it's possible with a political will to rein in these guys. And one of the things, I mean, it's quite hard because it's very hard to tell how much money is going there because a lot of that money is secretive. But uh, we can say, sorry, but you can, individual firms, including pension funds, can only have so much money invested in that kind of gambling so that they don't take risk. There are lots of ways in which you can manage that. Personally, I would like to forbid it altogether, but um, for the moment, you know, this is what... We, and we achieved this victory in in the European Parliament last week. Well, I would tend to agree with you that why should we... I mean, I can understand you want to have a future contract. If you want wheat in three months from now, it's okay yes. to say, I want to buy this wheat at a certain... You hedge your bets, and and that's logical. You want some kind of safety in, in your yeah. flows of, of both raw material and money. That's, that's fine. But we're, what we are talking about here is just generating speculatory trades with no purpose of using this commodity at all. It's only pure gambling. Yeah. And I don't see why it should be so controversial to ban this. And people say, oh, this would d- uh, damage the liquidity. But come on, if people would need grain or, or, or whatever commodity, they will buy it anyway. And, you know, the capital will flow there then. Sure. And the point I want to make is this. This is where what's happening in the stratosphere, the remote part of the financial system, which is invisible, is like lightning and comes back and hits us here on the ground when we're trying to buy bread, right? When people in Britain are going to food banks, when, you know, we have inflation and we suffer and we blame wages. We say, oh, the workers have been demanding too much pay or we blame even profits. And I think we can do I'm not saying that both don't in some ways contribute to inflation, but we never blame what's going on out there. And that's because we we don't look at it and we don't see it and we don't try and understand it. But its impact on our daily lives is, is immense. How often do you in the political debate hear that the prices of bread is too high, so I want banking regulations, I want financial regulations. You never hear that. No. But that's a problem of people not seeing these links. Yeah. Um, so what we hope with today's episode is a little bit opening people's eyes to the negative impact in your daily life on inflation, on on your you know possibility to afford a living. Yeah. Um, and also on the ecosystem. We haven't even really started to talk about the ecosystem yet, but I think it's really important because. If you allow this massive speculation and this massive profits, this money will, you know, exploit workers and nature when they are when they are used later. I was a bit worried when I saw the book you wrote, The uh, Green New Deal, because it can mean anything. It can mean a techno-optimistic green growth scenario, which is completely unrealistic. Yeah, yeah. And it can mean business as usual, you just swap fuel for another exploit, like you, yeah, you yeah. change oil for biofuels and you exploit nature and destroy that. So, but when you talk about the Green New Deal, it's more interesting, I think, because you see the systematic problems. Would you tell a little bit about what you see as a Green New Deal could look like? Yeah, I mean, one of my disillusionments is that lots of people have picked up on the Green New Deal, but they don't touch the finance sector. Yeah, that's so ironic. When I look at... Uh, the, uh, the American Green New Dealers, they don't go near Wall Street. They don't dare to challenge Wall Street, right? And the whole of the New Deal, you know, Roosevelt was inaugurated as president on a Saturday afternoon in March 1933. That night he comes back to the White House and he says to his staff, we are going to dismantle the global financial system. At the time it was defined as a gold standard. And I want you to go to Wall Street and tell them to hand over their gold. And his staff said to him, I'm terribly sorry, we can't do it because tomorrow's a holy day. It's a Sunday. You're going to have to wait till Monday. And he says, you know, I can't wait to do this. But anyway, they have to wait till Monday and they close the banks. And the, the, the story that's always told is, oh, they closed the banks to fix the banks. Oh, no. They closed the banks to give the banks the opportunity to go into their vaults and take the gold and get out. And for them to understand that now the banks, Wall Street was no longer in charge of the economy. That was the first thing he did for the New Deal. And then that gave him what we in economics call policy autonomy. He was now able to make policy without referring to Wall Street, essentially. 
it's never quite so simple, but I, I think for, for, to understand the theory, that's what it did. He was given greater powers and his treasurer was given greater powers. And they had to tackle massive unemployment, bankruptcy, farmers burning their fields down because they couldn't get a decent price for their produce. And they had a massive ecological disaster, which was called uh, the Dust Bowl. And, you know, he then embarked on a labor-intensive strategy of mobilizing all those unemployed people into groups and getting them to plant trees. Now, there were problems because they were all white men. He wouldn't allow women to join and he didn't allow black people to join. And also often monocultures of trees also, not only people. All of that was problematic. But they addressed the fact that through excessive agriculture and extraction, they had almost destroyed the land, the viability of the land, of whole swathes of the United States. So he tackled unemployment, an ecological crisis. He provided money for the arts. So um, The Grapes of Wrath, which is a famous book, John Steinbeck, of the Depression. John Steinbeck got a grant from the government to write the book. Go and sit down for two years. We'll guarantee you'll pay for two years and you can write a book. I mean, can you imagine the magic of that? So they did all this. And um, with all the problems associated. And so I'm very clear that for me, the Green New Deal was you first tackle Wall Street. Then you look at your other problems, you know. And if you try by looking, first of all, at the ecosystem and trying to fix that, but you don't touch the financial system, then forget it, you know. I'm not saying my arguments are perfect and I'm not saying that I'm right on everything. And there's a lot of flaws in my book, but it's different in that sense. And and I've been very disappointed the way in which the Green New Deal has been used as a kind of, um, I don't know. And, it, you know, it's been wonderful to have something, an umbrella, if you like, under which we all stand. And we say we want a new economy. We want a new financial system. And that's a huge thing, I think. We're all together. Because the, the Green Movement, in my experience, has been splintered into millions of tiny little different units all over the world. And we never made enough of an impact because we weren't clear about what we were asking for. You you mentioned on passant a little bit like we have no chance to solve the environmental problems unless we do this. Yeah. We will fail to protect climate, biodiversity and social justice unless we do a reform of the financial system. That's totally clear. I completely agree with you there. Yeah. Now, what positive examples that you have seen recently or that you would propose that are reasonable to make politicians understand and actually do and make people understand and actually request, uh, what would you say are some concrete steps we could take today? You know, I I mean, I was so encouraged by this European Parliament thing this last week. Um, the point is that I am really quite negative about this because I can't see the positive next steps. You know, the positive next steps is to have politicians who understand this mm. and who decide to get a grip on on Wall Street and on uh, the finance sector. We don't have those. You know, we have politicians who tell us, sorry, we there is no money. And we know that money is a social construct that we can promise. Our problem is we can make promises. The question is, there is a limit to our promises, you know, and that is an ecological limit. But within those limits, we can make promises. I promise I'm going to re retrofit my house. I'm going to go and find the mud. I can make bricks here. I can use my labor and so on and so forth and get straw. And we could together make something happen. And I can promise to do that. Within those ecological limits, it's possible. But our governments are saying to us, sorry, but we must have austerity because really, you know, there is no money. Uh, sorry, yes, we did find, oh, you're quite right, we did find $20 trillion in 2020 to bail out the shadow banking system, but we can't find $20 trillion to employ people, to end poverty, to end inequality, and to uh, protect us from the big threat that is coming, which is climate breakdown, right? So I was criticized in New Left Review this month, who said, oh, the book's all very well but she doesn't offer any agency, political agency. And it's true. I don't see the way forward. What I'm convinced about is that understanding, knowing what the problem is, is one way we can begin to build the pressure. If we don't even know there's a problem, if we don't even know there's a stratosphere, how can we campaign on it? You know, mm -hmm. we, 
We like to campaign on the tangible stuff we can see, the hedgehogs, all of that. Campaigning on something we can't see is much harder. But if we did, as we did this last week, then, you know, the change would be significant. So that would be the reasonable way. The unreasonable way is to have a fascism, authoritarianism, and another catastrophic war. That's the other way we're going to get change. I think that's also interesting. Uh, I mean, already Hannah Arendt warned about the rise of fascism if the elite can project false image in people's heads about what things are. And I think when we come to the financial system, we have been projected a false image. It's, yeah. We need to be clear about this, that what we do have is a poorly regulated casino-based system with extreme risk-taking where the consequences of the risks are taken by poor people around the world, by average taxpayers and the environment. Okay. And unless we see this, um, we will not ask for demands and changes. So I, I totally agree that understanding this is really important. But then we also see people want to take action. They want to do something. Yeah. If I... I listen to this podcast, I start reading your books, I start understanding right. the system, and I see, hang on a second, this is really flawed. What is my next step? I mean, I'm stumped about that, really. I mean, the next step is for us to get together. The next step is for me, for the Green parties and, and progressive parties to pull us together. I think it has to be political. You know, there, the, the political means power. We've got to take power. That means we have to organize. It can't be nice to each other and form little voluntary groups and be kind to each other. That won't do it. We have to get involved in the dirty business of gaining political power. And the best way to do that is to combine, to come together. I mean, if we can come together with people who are already combining, like the trade unions or the churches, then we will have institutions around which we can organize. But it has to be political organization. And I don't see political parties tackling these issues seriously enough. The thing that inspires me, and the reason I can keep going, because it would be <laughs> depressing, was when I was helping to lead the Jubilee 2000 campaign. When we began, people said to us, how are you going to explain to the public to cancel the debts of foreign countries, remote countries? And how do you explain the, the international creditor debtor, sovereign debtor system to ordinary people, you know, they're, they're not going to get that. When when I was employed to do the job, I said, that's what we should do. And they said, and I'm talking here about people like the head of Oxfam and so on. They said, oh, you, you can't do that. You know, people, it's too complicated. And I said, I don't agree. It's not complicated. And the proudest moment for me was when the Treasury uh, under Gordon Brown, a, a very senior official came to me and said, and what the hell is going on here? We're getting letters from women on pink pieces of paper with a little bunch of roses in the corner saying, Dear Sir, I understand that you're renegotiating Uganda's debt and that you've arbitrarily chosen this date for the calculation of the... He said, How do they know about this date? How do they know we're doing this? I said, It's not rocket science, you know. We just told them. And when she sat at her kitchen table and wrote this letter to Gordon Brown to say to him, I'm watching you and I know what you're doing, you know, the Treasury had to employ staff. Gordon Brown had to uh, respond. Blair had to respond and so on and so forth. So awareness itself is empowering. People become empowered by better understanding and better knowledge. And then we have to organize. And I'm getting old now. I can't do the organizing. But I would love to see that mobilization and that organization mm. take place. I mean, I, I think it's because I saw how ordinary people became empowered and how they were soaking up this knowledge. They wanted to understand it. Nobody bothered to tell them before about these arrangements. And of course, we had a lot of hostility as well. You know, we would stand on the street campaigning and people would say, oh, I wish you'd pay my mortgage. Or why do you pay, why do you want to pay off the debts of those corrupt black African countries? And then you would, you know, I often say that Jubilee 2000 was really an anti-racist campaign. Then you'd have to explain, well, why did our government lend them the money? Why did our banks lend them money if they're so corrupt? And might I remind you of them is quite often dictators. Yeah. Why did we give dictators, Nigerian dictators money to buy our weapons? You know, ask yourself the question. 
And and people, when they did, they said, ah, right, got it, I understand. And one thing, so, you know, we had this demonstration at the G8 in Birmingham in 1998, and Blair was there with uh, Helmut Kohl and uh, Bill Clinton and Yeltsin from Russia, and uh, we said we were going to have a demonstration. So they said, right, we're going to fool these people. We're going to take the leaders out of Birmingham, and we're going to a castle in the countryside. So on the day when we were all coming together to demonstrate, there were no leaders. So they, I think they thought they would kill the demonstration that way. But what had happened was 3,000 journalists were in Birmingham to, because there were journalists from all over the world, and there were no leaders. So they came to us and they said, what's all this demonstration about? <laughs> and so Blair was forced to fly back to Birmingham to meet with us precisely because they realized they had made this incredible public relations error, you know. But what it showed you was the power of the crowd, the power of the people. We managed to make these people eat humble pie. And then after that, he went, helped organize cancellation of the debts. And we canceled about $100 billion in nominal terms of debt owed by about 30 of the poorest countries. It was no small beer. This is important, I think, for, for people to feel that we are not powerless. Yeah, exactly. You might start organizing yourself around the kitchen table and then in larger and larger groups. And yeah. when more than two and a half percent of the population is on the streets demanding something, it rarely fails. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So there and is we're hope. all part of this. Yeah. Let's rather go that route than go down the fascism route, really, which is... Any day of the week, I would say. Yeah. So for me, what a lot of the, what we're seeing at the moment is the famous Polanyi analysis, if I don't know if we have a minute or two on this, Carl. Polanyi argued in the 1930s that the gold standard, which is the globalization of the 30s, so badly impacted the ordinary people in the street that they started to demand to be protected. And the Social Democrats said, sorry, we can't do anything about the, you know, the gold standard. We must have the gold standard. The Labour Party in Britain said, no, no, we defend the gold standard. So people said, well, if you're not going to look after my interest, I want someone who will protect me, my job, my house, my property, my kids. And if you won't do it, I will look for a strong man or woman who will do that. And mm -hmm. so they looked to Hitler. So they're looking to Modi in India. So they're looking to Putin. So they're looking to Bolsonaro, to Trump. Now, you know, you can argue whether or not these men are strong or not, but they are promising to protect the people in the Rust Belt from those with a Mexican war or with an attack on China. Do you see what I mean? So mm. already we're seeing the consequences of the financialization of the economy. It's making people want to defend themselves, to be protected. And our political class doesn't understand what the threat is. And so they are looking to the right or to extreme parties. So some people would love to print money, expand the economy because we need to do so much investment to solve different problems. I'm worried, however, that even if that's financially possible, if we would reform the system, we have ecological limits. We can't solve every single problem of society with expanding production, expanding growth. What, what's your take on this? So, I mean, that, I completely agree with that, but I also disagree with those who say we can just print money. You know, that, that what we have to understand about money is that it's an obligation. If you say we just print money, then you're saying there's no obligation. We can just get a print machine and boom, churn stuff out. That's not what it is. Money is an obligation. If you don't make it an obligation, if you make it something easy, you will get too much of it, right? If you say you can only have money if you promise to pay and if you promise to spend this money on something sustainable, then you're not going to create masses of money. But if you say, oh, don't worry, we just can print the money, you've, you've not understood what money is in the first place. And secondly, you're encouraging, uh, you know, if you like, um, exponential rises in the printing and the availability of money. And we can't be that like that. We can't do that. You can't have, you know... Obligations are, are limited by the ecosystem and, and by the possibility of what you can do. If you, you say that an obligation can just be printed, 
you're saying it's very easy. So I, I have to tell you, I have terrible arguments with some of my dearest friends about this. So um, this is a debate that will carry on. I'm happy to hear you have the same arguments oh, as me it? then. But, but I think this is an important aspect also to understand that, um, yes, technically we can print as much money we want, but there are limits to this from both the side of ecology but also on the kind of exactly promises to repay that you talk about. The point is, Carl, we don't even print money anymore. You know, I walk past today the homeless people in the high street in, here in London and I can't give them money because I don't have printed money. It's all digital. So it's ridiculous, in my view, to talk about printing money. I, I feel quite strongly about that. Hmm. But this connection, I think, is really important to see that yeah. we need to reduce emissions so rapidly but not every solution to environmental problems can be to build something new, to replace yeah. something old with new infrastructure, new technology, Absolutely. because no. the system limits of this planet prevents us from this. So even if it's technically possible in the banking system, it's not desirable no. from an environmental point of view. Yeah. Yeah. I would argue it's not even technically possible, but there you go. <laughs> yes, but right, so we, know, we both met people uh, who think it is. Yeah. Hmm, but... The early economists actually foresaw a more positive development. You talked about Keynes here. These kind of positive progressive changes rather than the negative ones you are referring to now, um, you could foresee that he foresaw that his grandchildren would only work a few hours a day because all the technological development would uh, actually you know, reduce the need for so heavy work and you would spend more time doing things that you like and you yourself control over. And we can even go further back. Many neoliberals have probably read um, John Stuart Mill. He talks about that a stationary state of the growth of the economy is not the end of development, that people could, um, you know, that we would have more time for culture, more time for leisure, more time for anything that makes life better. That's the purpose of this text. So even 1848, John Stuart Mill, a liberal economist, would yeah. foresee that constant growth is not going to give us what we need. How come we are still pursuing this growth logic to at all costs? I think it's lack of understanding. I think it's because the 1% are now so powerful in the global economy and they have bamboozled us, really. But I am hugely optimistic that humanity has the capacity to rise above these things and rise against them and transform them. We've seen transformations happen in the past. You know, the Jubilee Principle was about the periodic correction to imbalances. We have Someday, every Sabbath, we rest for a day in order to correct the imbalance in our own health system and our own social and economic system. We have sabbaticals so that academics can periodically correct the imbalances in their life. Um, and, and so I know that we're quite capable of it, and it will happen. I just wish it would happen sooner rather than later. Well, let's make it happen. I think that was a wonderful conclusion of this episode. Thanks a lot, Sanpatifo. Thank you. Thank you, Carl. It's been a pleasure.